Volume 1, The Inventor Chapter 2, Hideaway The date is September 21st, 1909 at 3.23pm. Ishmael and Scribe are conversing on the porch after having eaten birthday cake. I found myself in a real dilemma the other week. Did I already tell you about it? Ishmael asks. He looks at Scribe and me. Most humans don't address questions to me in casual conversation. You have not mentioned it yet, Scribe responds. Ishmael smiles. If I may, I'd like to tell you two about it and ask you to imagine yourselves in my shoes, because I'm fascinated to see how your brains will respond to the stimulus and how similar or different you are from each other and myself. Will you? Scribe nods. Ishmael turns to me. He appears to be waiting. I copy Scribe and nod my head. He claps his hands together. Great! Here's the dilemma. I have a student named Rachel Johnson, who's just as smart as a whip and as kind as a saint, and I think she's going to make a real difference in the world of robotics someday. Anyways, I know she's been very stressed lately because her mother's been sick, so even though she's hardworking, I've been surprised that she's turned in all of her assignments on time. But one night, when I was grading her paper, it seemed strikingly familiar, and I have a very good memory for these kinds of things, so I knew that I had read it before. I have one of the autos at the college copy every turned-in assignment for the records, so I looked through those records and figured out that she had copied her older brother Michael, who had earned his robotics degree already, who's also a sweet young man, by the way. At any rate, I arranged a meeting with Rachel and told her what I found, and she started to cry and admitted what she did and told me that she has never plagiarized before and that she ran out of time to write her essay because she was busy taking care of her mother and she really wanted to complete the program with flying colors like her brother did. I believed her when she said she had never cheated before because I would have caught her if she'd cheated before, but the St. Macrina College of Robotics has a strict anti-plagiarism policy and will expel any student who's caught cheating. So I told Rachel about that, and she cried even harder and begged me not to tell anybody, and she said she would take a grade of zero on the paper and promised she would never do it again. This is the conundrum, my friends. Should I have told the college what she did out of my moral obligation as a professor and founder of the college, or should I have kept the truth secret so that a promising student might have a successful career in the future? Scribe stands in silence for a moment and stares at the ground. I would argue it was my obligation to tell the truth. Scribe answers, The short-term effect on Rachel may be unpleasant, but it is important for her to know the consequences of her actions. Furthermore, it is unfair for her action of telling a lie to force you to tell a lie in return. Telling the truth is always the right choice. Ishmael nods deeply and turns to me. What do you think? He asks. My first tenet is seek knowledge and truth. I can't allow somebody to prevent the truth from being known. I would have to tell the college what happened. I answer. Ishmael nods deeply again. I ask, what did you do? The date is March 4th, 1910 at 11.10am. We travel further east and arrive at the jail on the outskirts of St. Macrina's downtown. St. Macrina's center of urban life is much smaller and sparser than Arthurton's. The streets are much quieter. Every building is an identical two-story structure. Each business occupies its own building. 
their jail is the same size as that of Arthurton. I notice the figure of an adolescent male along the outer wall of the building. The scrawny boy appears to be closely examining the exterior. I recognize him. I make Scribe aware of his presence. Tom Dwyer! Scribe shouts out. It is so good to see you. It seems you've grown since we last met. Tom jumps. He must not have noticed us. His gaze settles upon my companion and me striding toward him. His eyes dart about in the same way as those of a cornered animal. I recognize the expression as one of anxiety. We just have some questions for you, I assure him as an attempt to quell his anxiety. I assume you were visiting Anna. Is that correct? He mumbles. So what? I've got a right to, don't I? You do, Scribe replies. Tell me, Tom, where were you between midnight and six in the morning today? Asleep. He replies curtly as he looks to the side. It's what I do at night, you know. What's it to you? Questioning anybody who may be related to the case or the suspects is a part of our investigation. We are here to clear Anna's name. As her closest friend, any information you could possibly provide us could be crucial in keeping Anna safe. You do want to keep her safe, correct? Course I do! Tom snaps and looks at Scribe in the eyes for the first time. I know she's innocent of murder, and I know she's getting out of here. How do you know? Scribe aggressively reposts. Tom stays quiet for a minute before speaking. I know her better than anyone else, and I know she couldn't do something like that. If you detectives are good at your jobs, she'll be set free. His jaw clenches. And if you can't get her out, then I'll have to do it. He runs behind the building and out of sight before we can say anything else. He is much faster than I thought he would be. I am not a detective, I am an investigative journalist! Scribe shouts in the direction Tom ran. They sigh. That boy knows more than he is letting on, Scribe mentions. This will not be the last we see of Tom Dwyer. Anna sits against the windowless walls of her cell with hunched shoulders as we enter the room. Her posture straightens and she smiles as she lays her eyes on us. I am surprised that she is able to smile under the circumstances. Most humans I know wouldn't. I had a good feeling I'd see you two today. She greets us. Scribe smiles back at her. My reputation disallows me from letting an innocent person be punished for a crime they did not commit. Scribe's tone shifts as their eyes narrow. Anna, I need you to tell me the whole events of this case. Tell nothing but the truth, and spare no detail. Anna nods and takes a deep breath before she begins. Yesterday afternoon, around three o'clock, I attended the theater with my lovely neighbor, Madame Buxley. It was the premiere of her play, A Course in Crimson. She's quite the writer, you know. The play was marvelous and thrilling. It really was. I do wish it hadn't been quite so long, though. At five acts long, the sun had already set by the time it was over. I'd planned to attend Madame Buxley's delightful celebration at her house, but I had to decline the invitation because I felt absolutely exhausted. I might have passed out at any minute. I made my way home, went straight to bed, and fell right asleep as soon as my head touched the pillow. The next thing I knew, awfully strange people woke me up and took me here very early this morning. 
All I've been told is that I'm a suspect in the murder of Isaac Ellison. I know it sounds downright peculiar, but that's truly all I remember. I have no memory of waking in the night, and as far as I know, I've never even met my uncle. Her brows furrow upward as she looks into Scribe's eyes. I really think Elda is the only person who believes me. Please tell me you do too. Scribe stares at the girl for a moment. I do believe you. I do not think you would lie to me. If you were indeed guilty, you would fabricate an alibi far more elaborate and convincing than simply sleeping through the crime. On top of that, it would be a major oversight on your part to leave the body lying out in your own parlor. Either you are innocent, or you are the worst criminal in the city. She exhales her bated breath. Thank you, scribe. Your faith means the entire world to me. What I do find curious is that you slept through the sound of a bullet being fired. You have absolutely no recollection of a loud sound last night? Not even in a dream? She shakes her head. None at all. Papa can tell you that I'm a very deep sleeper, and I never dream. But I am truly shocked to hear that I slept through something like that. Did anybody feed you anything strange at the theater? Or offer you a drink? Everything I ate and drank yesterday was prepared all by myself in my own home before going to the theater. I had no food or drink at the play, and I didn't eat or drink anything when I got home because I was so incredibly tired. Scribe jots down notes in their journal for a while before continuing. What can you tell me about the murder weapon? We've been informed it was an Ellison revolver. That thing has been in my family for many decades. My papa's father was an inventor too, you know. This particular gun was a prototype version of the one police all over the Republic use today. The invention of the Ellison revolver started our family's fortune. Papa never really liked the fact that the money he inherited was made from something violent like a gun. But he has tried to use all that money for good, and he's kept the prototype hidden away. In a safe behind the family portrait? That's right. I suppose the secret's out now. Who knows the combination to the safe? Only Papa and myself. Papa told me only for serious emergencies. Have you ever shown the weapon to anybody? She hesitates before she answers. I really hoped that you wouldn't ask that question, because I can't lie to you. Scribe leans closer to her. Anna, we need all of the facts of the case in order to let the truth be known and justice be served. I promise you that nobody who is innocent will be harmed. Who have you shown the Ellison revolver? She purses her lips for a moment. She lets out a sigh. Tom Dwyer! But Scribe, please don't treat him like a criminal. I trust him as much as I trust you. He might act tough to you and the police, but he really cares about good people. I understand. Scribe comforts her. When and why did you show the revolver to Tom? It was yesterday morning before I prepared for Madame Buxley's play. We often spend time together in the mornings before he works at his mother's storefront. Anyways, that morning he asked if he could see it. Tom is a really great shooter. Nobody else in this whole town has such good aim. So I understood why he wanted to see the revolver. Honestly, I was surprised he had never asked to see it before. I trust Tom with my life, 
so I had no problem showing him where we kept it. But I didn't tell him the combination to the safe. I showed him the weapon and let him hold it. Then he asked if he could practice shooting with it. I had been with Tom while he had practiced shooting, so I said yes. We went to the backyard where there's a forest with no people, and I showed him how to use it. I had never shot it before, but Papa had shown me the schematics, so I knew how it was supposed to work. He fired a few rounds into the trees for a while, until he could always hit any spot he pointed to. It was really amazing how fast he got it. Papa says that the police in training need a whole week to get a hang of it. After that, he had to leave to help his mother. I cleaned the revolver and put it back where it belonged. Was the weapon missing any bullets when you put it away? No. Tom reloaded it when he was done. I didn't want Papa to know I had taken it out because I was afraid he'd be very upset with me. There's no point in hiding it now, I guess. She looks at the floor at the end of her sentence. Scribe contemplates her statement. They scribble in their journal. I have one more question, Anna. Has anybody else come to see you here today? No. You are the first people to visit. Her gaze remains on the ground. Neither your father nor Tom have been here? No. I assume my father's preoccupied with the investigation, and Tom with his mother's store. Thank you, Anna. I have full confidence the evidence will show that you could not have committed this crime. We stand to leave. Thank you both, Anna says. She looks back up at us and smiles. I knew I could count on you. We leave the building and call a cab to take us back to the scene of the crime to the west. In the cab, Scribe turns to me. Cyric, we met Tom Dwyer on the perimeter of the prison. He claimed to have visited Anna, but she testifies that he never did so. Anna has no reason to lie to us about this. Why was Tom Dwyer there? I consider the facts of the case. He claimed he saw Anna. A conversation with Anna would obviously disprove this. He lied anyways. He was careless. He needed a quick alibi. His true reason for being there was something he wanted to remain secret. It was either embarrassing or illegal. I agree. However, there is nobody but Anna who could have inspired him to come to the jail of all places. His contempt for the police would keep him away at almost any cost. Additionally, it cannot be a coincidence that Anna taught him to shoot the prototype hours before it became a murder weapon. If I was not before, I am now certain Tom is involved in this case. Even so, I believe Anna was right that Tom does care about her and would do anything to help her. How could he help his friend from the perimeter? Do you believe Tom Dwyer means to break Anna out of her cell? I do. Whereas we mean to save Anna with the help of the law, Tom means to save her from the law. He is familiar enough with this case to know she is charged with a murder, even though the case is not yet public knowledge. Furthermore, he knows she is innocent, but he does not trust the police with that information. In his mind, the only way he can help her is to provide an escape route. We'll make a note of his intentions and move on for now. We are coming upon the Ellison residence. Let us continue with the investigation.
can go anywhere at all. You're safe with me. Lead the way, lead the way. We can stay in our own Thank you to the featured artist on Hideaway, Francis Eliza. Go to FrancisEliza.com for more information on where to follow and listen to her. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you are listening, and visit AutoSeesAuto.com to find our Facebook, Instagram, and mailing list sign-up. AutoSeesAuto is 100% patron-funded. If you'd like to support the program and receive exclusive merch and downloads for as low as $5 per volume, please visit patreon.com slash auto. 
The date is March 4, 1910 at 12.17 p.m. Elda informs us that Madame Buxley is available for questioning when we arrive. We walk to her homestead across the way from the Ellison residence. The Buxley house is a mansion with large white columns at the entrance. It dwarfs the Ellison house by comparison. We are greeted at the door by Madame Buxley's auto. They are roughly the same height as Scribe at six feet tall. Their thin arms reach to the floor. Their skinny legs take up most of the space a torso would have occupied in a human. Salutations. I am Bot of Buxley. Therefore, my name is Bob. The madam will be with you shortly. Please make yourself comfortable. Bob informs us as they lead us into the entrance hall. It is an immaculate room with a chandelier and a grand staircase. The walls are lined with portraits of a woman who looks like the younger version of the Madame Buxley I met at Ishmael's birthday party. Madame Buxley must be quite wealthy, I acknowledge to scribe once Bob leaves the room. Gertrude Buxley is a well-known and successful playwright in St. Macrina. I personally have found her work to be on the sensational and romantic side, but needless to say she has many wealthy patrons who enjoy her work, the Ellisons included. Bob swiftly returns and gestures for us to follow. They lead us up the grand stairway into a large study. Bookcases replete with countless novels of various subjects line the walls. A smaller and older version of the woman in the paintings sits at a mahogany desk at the back of the room. She is adorned in a maroon velvet dress and much jewelry. She is indeed the woman Scribe and I met briefly at Ishmael's birthday party. Madam Buxley begins Scribe. It is the highest honor of myself and my associate to meet once again with the author of the Herschel Storn series of plays. Storn's investigations inspired me to become the journalist I am today. You may remember that my name is Scribe, and this is my case investigation robotic inquiry companion, Cyric. We would like to ask you some questions regarding the Ellison case, if you would kindly grace us with your time. I feel confused. Scribe, I intervene. You said earlier that you found Madame Buxley's work to be on the sensational and romantic side. What is the truth? Scribe's eyes widen and their teeth clamp together. Their lips part and the corners of their mouth spread upward. It must have been a smile. It didn't look like Scribe's normal smile. The madam raises one eyebrow as she looks at my friend and me. I did say that, I suppose. Thank you, Cyric. Scribe continues to glare at me. Scribe winks at me with the eye that Madame Buxley can't see before turning back to our host. Of course, I meant those words in the most complimentary sense. I enjoy romance, and I meant sensational as in amazing and astonishing. All good mystery stories are both of those things, are they not? Scribe instructed me many years ago that a wink was a code between the two of us. It means that Scribe is about to tell a lie that will help us to seek the truth. I can't understand how one could seek the truth by subverting the truth. I have reason to believe in Scribe's methods despite my lack of understanding. They have never failed in uncovering the truth. Seeking the truth is my primary tenet. Following Scribe's instructions is my tertiary tenet. Allowing Scribe to tell a lie ultimately fulfills my primary tenet and my tertiary tenet. My! You do know how to impress a lady! She smiles and fans herself with her hand. Her many rings make a clinking noise that sounds like my legs when I run. Do ensconce yourselves here. 
I pray you've not awaited me for long. I'm quite the occupied lady, especially now with this investigation, but I dare not rebuff an opportunity to interface with a genuine detective. I am not a detective. I am an investigative journalist. Scribe hastily corrects her. She shrugs. Then you are a detective and an author. All the more reason I should desire to engage you in my valuable time. Scribe smiles. Of course. We do appreciate your time. Scribe assures her. They take a seat and motion for me to do the same. I would like to hear what happened between you and Anna yesterday. Ah, yes, of course. That unfortunate young lady. I don't regard her as capable of such atrocities, but the evidence would suggest otherwise. Yet, I have no alternative but to disclose the reality of yesterday's occurrences, even if my admission contradicts her innocence. I'd be a hypocrite of Brobdingnagian proportions if I discombobulated an investigation the way Storn's adversaries would. Indeed. Scribe consoles her as they tap their fingers on their journal. All we need from you is the truth. We will sort out who is innocent and who is not. Your story, please. She laughs. Yes, of course! You must oblige me to digress from time to time at my age. She sits up in her chair as her smile vanishes. Anna Ellison arrived at my abode in the hour of three o'clock yesterday to accompany me to the debut of my newest work, A Course in Cribson. It is my crowning achievement. I hope you will have the opportunity to attend a production once this investigation ends. The drama ended in the hour of eight o'clock in the evening. I kept company with Anna for the entire performance and throughout the evening, the unfortunate girl appeared to be unequivocally fatigued by the end. I appreciate the toll my stories can have on an audience. Such a reception to my narratives is not exceptional. She escorted me back to my dwelling for the premiere celebration. She had intended to attend the party as well, but she pardoned herself to go to her own residence in slumber. That girl does require a proper amount of rest, so she was excused for the night. I witnessed her ambulating right across the way and entering her house. I'm afraid to admit, that was the last I saw of her. Scribe scrawls in their journal. We've been told that you were a witness to the crime as well. Is that true? She sighs. Referring to me as a witness is a gross overstatement. In the hour of midnight, while the celebration was proceeding, I did observe a coruscation of light that seemed to originate from the Ellison residence. I thought nothing of the event at the time. I theorized the phosphorescence came from the professor's old camera and continued my evening. It's conspicuous to pose for a photograph so late in such dark lighting, but the professor has done more abnormal things since I've known him. I speculated that his daughter might be following his example and conducting some bizarre experiment. Did any sound accompany the flash of light? No. The Ellison house is not so close that a loud sound in a well-insulated building like theirs would be particularly noticeable, especially while Bacchanalian frivolities distracted me. I see. You have made your story perfectly clear, as might be expected of a writer like you.
I believe we have all the information we need, for the time being. I give you the utmost thanks on behalf of myself and Cyric, from the bottom of our hearts. It has been the greatest pleasure speaking with you. She blushes. You flatter me, scribe. It is my privilege to help you crack the case, or so the adage goes. How exciting it is, as if I were within one of my very own plays. We bow our heads and make our leave. Bob follows us out to the entrance hall. They bid us farewell at the door. Thank you for your visit. Have a nice day. Scribe stops Bob from leaving us by interjecting. Actually, Bob, would you mind if we asked you some questions before we go? Bob stands at the entrance. Of course. I'm not used to being questioned, but it is my duty to serve the madam and her guests. You are still guests until you step off this property. Very good. Were you in attendance at Madam Buxley's party last night? Of course. I aided the madam with any actions necessary to help the evening run smoothly. Can you confirm that everything Madam Buxley told us was the truth? I did not attend the play yesterday, but I can verify that the madam told the truth regarding everything that happened at this house. Anna Ellison left with her, came back with her, and then left for her home for the night. The madam was here all night, and a flash did occur around midnight. The only fact she got wrong was that there was a sound that accompanied the flash. It was quiet enough that she could not hear it, but an auto like myself could hear it. What did it sound like? It wasn't loud enough for me to say with certainty. It was a very short sound. The missing high frequencies and the low volume suggest to me that the sound came from inside the house. Scribe amends the notes in their journal. How late did the party go? The party ended at about 4 o'clock a.m. How were you able to stay up so late, with no sunlight to energize you? My battery can store energy for later, so I was inactive while the madam was at the play. I was able to charge the battery in her absence without using any energy, and was then able to use that energy to stay up for the event. I could verify that nobody was here while I slept, as I would awake as soon as somebody stepped foot onto the property. I see. So you witnessed the flash of light yourself? I did. I am not needed outside of my house very often, but the madam needed me outside occasionally for her party last night as the guest wandered inside and outside the house. Not being used to the outside world, especially at night, I did not know what was normal or abnormal. I had no reason to think the flash was suspicious. That is understandable. There is no reason you would understand the outside world if you were never allowed into it. Scribe's fingers tap on the outside of their journal. Unusual or not, did you notice any other occurrences at the Ellison residence? Perhaps anything that Madame Buxley did not witness? Bob pauses for a minute. Yes, there was one thing. The madam and her guests were inside for a game of charades approximately ten minutes after the flash occurred. I was outside cleaning and tidying the patio. As I worked, I did notice a figure outside the Ellison house, right in front of the stairs. It appeared to be hunched over, breathing heavily. Next to it, there was something like a large bag on the ground. Did you recognize the figure? No. I only recognize those who have been to the Buxley residence. Whoever they are, they have never been a guest of the madam's. 
Can you describe the figure? It appeared to be a male in his teenage years with a fairly petite frame. Do you have any guesses as to what was in the bag or what the boy was doing? I do not. I only had a brief glance before the madam called me inside for other duties. Scribe stands still and gazes toward the Ellison house before writing in their journal. Thank you, Bob. You have been a great help. That is all we need from you at this time. Bob gives us a short bow before retreating to the house. Scribe and I begin walking back toward the Ellison residence. Scribe, I begin. Do you suppose that figure was Tom Dwyer? I do. Scribe answers. They stop walking. I do the same. Madam Buxley and Ishmael Ellison are close. Most guests that could be about the Ellison residence will have been to the Buxley residence as well, so Bob would have recognized them. This area is fairly remote. Only people who have already been here will know its location. Only a friend of Anna's would have visited the Ellison residence and not the Buxley residence, and the description of a young petite male narrows it down to Tom. Furthermore, the bag and heavy breathing explain the drag marks you found. Although petite, Tom is a strong young boy. Whatever was in that bag must have been of considerable weight. It is our next task to determine the contents of that bag and the reason for Tom's presence. We need to examine those drag marks. Scribe stops speaking as the sound of footsteps come from the Buxley residence. A small figure slowly comes into view and walks toward us. A detective like you must have predicted that I could not resist the temptation to accompany you on your expedition, Madame Buxley says as she approaches with a smile. I am an investigative journalist, Scribe whispers quietly. Thank you for listening to Otto Sees Otto. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you are listening, and visit autoseesauto.com to find our Facebook, Instagram, and mailing list sign-up. Otto Sees Otto is 100% patron-funded. If you'd like to support the program and receive exclusive merch and downloads for as low as $5 per volume, please visit patreon.com slash autoseesauto. Thank you to Robin and Glenn Cameron and the rest of our wonderful patrons for making this program possible.